HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Friends of Firefighters, serving the FDNY community since 2001. Learn more at friendsoffirefighters.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meat in 3, we find out why the bacon, egg, and cheese, that classic bodega sandwich, is popping up on menus of New York's trendiest restaurants. We did a few iterations of it, and I was trying to fancify it. We tried the sausage, egg, and cheese, and then we tried to put charmoula sauce on it. We used feta cheese, and we're just like taking ingredients of the Mediterranean, if you will, and try to infuse it. But uh, for me, it was like a car wreck. Tune in to hear about the wild journey of the bacon, egg, and cheese from deli to fine dining on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey guys, it's October 2019. We have a special show today. We're talking about Empire Rye Project and Rye Week. We're here in the studio at heritageradionetwork.org. It's been a special week. Uh, it's, it's Rye Week, New York Rye Week. It's the third year. Uh, a few years ago, Tom Potter called me up and uh, asked me if I wanted to, to do something on it. And the story we're going to talk about today with uh, some of the founding uh, distilleries, we got Christopher from Coppersy and Tom Potter here to start. So you guys, uh, Christopher and Tom, just tell us how Empire Rye started, how you guys put it together, um, and some of the founding principles uh, of the of the product. Uh, yeah, thanks for having us on. Uh, I'm Christopher Williams. I'm the chief distiller at Coppersy Distilling in the Hudson Valley of New York in New Paltz. And uh, we make a few different Empire Rye expressions in addition to a few other whiskeys. But um, basically, Empire Rye was uh, the sort of the, the child of a drunken clatch at, uh, I think it was the 2014 uh, or 2013 uh, American Craft Spirits Association Conference. It was in Denver. Uh, and uh, after the award ceremony, a bunch of the New York distillers who were all, you know, we're all fairly close as far as a distilling industry from first from a state can, can be uh we're hanging out together uh getting loaded enjoying each other and and uh and celebrating each other's wins that year we had we had a lot actually um and you know this sort of topic of like wouldn't it be awesome if new york state had its own whiskey style you know it's like you know kentucky has bourbon you know it's sort of its ancestral uh home and, uh, you know, obviously scotch, single malt scotch or Irish whiskey, even Jap even Japanese whiskey is a thing, you know, and, and, and something like Tennessee whiskey. So, you know, it was sort of one of those drunken conversations that we th sort of thought would not be remembered the next morning. But the germ of that idea kind of developed and we kept on talking about it, you know, for a couple of years. Um, just kept on coming up like, yeah, yeah, we should do that. We should do that. And then in 2015... Something just happened. We we started having some email clatches and some meetings, and and said let's let's try and do this. So originally it was six of us. Um, let's see if I can do this off the top of my head. Uh, so it was my distillery, Coppersy Distilling, New York Distilling Company in Brooklyn, um, Kings County Distilling in Brooklyn, 
Finger Lakes Distilling up in Finger Lakes, um, Black Button up in the Buffalo area, and Hudson, uh, Tuttletown Spirits also in the Hudson Valley. So what was great about that group is that we had really broad geographic dispersal right off the bat. And, and what we realized we wanted was we really wanted it to truly be a New York state style. So the fact that we had full geographic distribution at that point, or, or fairly wide, um, was sort of, you know, it was, it was a great thing. And over about a four-month period, five-month period, uh, we went through six drafts and um, eventually came to the style guidelines that we uh, sort of voted on at that point, the, that would be Empire Rye. And then, so Tom, t- you were involved in the beginning also, so some anecdotes from the beginning. Well, uh, so as Christopher said, there was, a, I, I think, a meeting of the minds at the Denver Convention in 2015. And... Uh, I think maybe part of the uh, reason we could all get together. I, I know that uh, the drink definitely helped. We were we were all having a good time. Denver was a wonderful place to be. It was also just when the uh, uh, legalized marijuana uh, came into, <laughs> and I'm not going to name names, but uh, I know that at least some of us were were uh, experimenting legally for legally for the first time. But it, it was an idea that had been around, um, and we talked about. One of the problems is. Trying to get six distillers to agree to anything is just about impossible. And we are all friends, but when we started to talk about what would the rules be, it's not, it's not so easy. You know, we, wanted, we all, I think, felt like New York was a special place and that uh, Rye had a special connection. So there's a lot to work with. But, for instance, um, Christopher is on one end of the mad, passionate, do-everything-by-hand, um, uh, crazy artisan Uh, side of things. And, you know, not all of us are. So Christopher would have us all do our own floor malting, open uh, fire distillation, and we had to feed the pigs our our spent grains, you know. So that was one side of... uh, Our our first draft was definitely like, (laughs) definitely had a heavy hand of, yeah, let's make this as difficult for everybody as possible. So no one will want to do it. Yeah, so it would have been uh, basically an association of one. Um, But, you know, we had arguments in the elevator and going back and forth. And we, we, I think, ended up with some rules that allowed both for some flexibility um, so that there's room for artistic expression, but also that were real, that that did um, raise the bar high so that... uh, if it says Empire Rye on the label, you know that it is, in fact, a high-quality rye product. And then we have uh, Derek here from Van Brunt Still House. So, Derek, you, you joined as, like, the sev- I think you were the seventh distillery. So it, it, when you joined, what, what was it that appealed to you? Tell us a, your, your experience and more backstory. Well, I wasn't there in Denver, but I, you know, I, there, there were definitely some rumblings, maybe even before that convention, about, uh, about <clears throat> codifying some sort of New York State whiskey and when, when the conversation first started up, it was early on in my business development. And I was, uh, I was feeling a little, like, uh, a little bit more of an iconoclast. I didn't feel like it was right to be telling people how to make their whiskey. And so I didn't jump on board early on because I was uh, feeling like I wanted to make my whiskey like no one else made it. And, uh, it but fast forward a few years, uh, I really started to believe in the rye story and understand the place of rye in New York history and how rye in particular is a, is a uniquely, uh, is, a, is a grain that's uniquely suited to growing in New York. And I think it's, it's good for both the agricultural environment and also for, for us as, as craft beverage producers. And so I was really excited to, to jump on board and, and, um, and I, it didn't have to change anything. That was the biggest uh, <laughs> thing for me is that I was making my whiskey following the same guidelines that the Empire Rye was. Uh, the one distinction was that I was using some smaller barrels and my, aging my rye uh, only one year. And so I just, all I had to do is, it was um, age a little longer, which, which you don't, I generally don't believe in aging uh, small barrels for, for too long. So I have had to change my, my barrels up and, and change the way that I put things in the barrel. But, but basically, the whiskey I was making four years ago was Empire Rye, to, except for the aging requirement. So what, what are the official guidelines for Empire Rye? Uh, so, well, quickly, let me just say that I think that in a way, Derek's contribution as the first adopter 
which is sort of in the history of Empire Rise, how he will always be remembered. Van Bren still has the first adopter of Empire. Is in a way more. It's more valuable. You, you couldn't remember the original six, but you can definitely remember the first well, the, adopter. Well, right? the notion exactly. Well, the notion that a we kind of when he said when we found out that he was making a whiskey that complied already with it, it sort of was like wow. We we maybe we hit the nail on the head. Like this is what it's like organically. This is what New York whiskey already is, at least according to one producer. And then the fact that he was. Willing to adopt it. Because remember, we started it as six distilleries, but the intention was never for only us to make it. Because if it was just us, then it, you know, it wouldn't be successful. You know, we wanted wide-scale adoption. And at that point, we had no conception of how popular it would be. And so when Derek was like, yeah, I already make a whiskey that conforms. And yeah, I want to be part of the project. That was huge for us. It's like so validating. Um, but yeah, the, the, uh, the requirements are uh, it be uh, a whiskey made entirely in the state of New York. Uh, so, uh, fermented, distilled, uh, barreled and bottled in New York state at a New York distillery, uh, a minimum of 75% New York state grown rye. So, um, there's a farm distillery license class in New York that requires the people who operate under it to use a minimum of 75% New York state grain, uh, or New York state product. And, um, so we kind of let that inform our decision of how the, the style would see. So in this case, we said the 75% New York State product has to be New York State rye. Um, and then the remainder can be whatever you want. So this enables you to, to have some creativity um, in terms of your mash bill. Um, and uh, it has to be a minimum of two years old. So we wanted to make sure, you know, initially there was this notion of like, well, why don't we just hit the market with what we, what we you know, we can do it earlier. It was like, well... There's already in that point in the distilling community the sense that that advancing the age would more make the whiskey more valid. Um, and uh, what else, Tom? What am I missing? There's something. Oh yeah, low barrel entry proof has yeah. to be a minimum of, uh, or sorry, a maximum of 115 into the barrel. And I'm going to say you, you can go to RyeWeek.com. All this information is there. Some the great introductory interviews in the New York Times and everything. But I want to jump ahead a little more. So you guys, wh- why rye whiskey? Now I know that. Um, at New York Distilling, you guys were, were making a rye. Derek, you were making a rye. And you were making a rye before this as well? We had laid far- down a different mash bill initially. Um, but then we had started another, we'd started our 100% malted rye, which also just, we, which conformed as well. So why, why, why rye whiskey for the New York State product? The very first Europeans that settled in this area were, were the Dutch. They brought with them rye grain. Rye grain grew really well here. And the very first spirits and, and, and the white folks that came to, to New York were distilling pretty much day one. And, uh, so, and most of the spirits that were made early on were rye spirits. They were initially gin and Geneva, but, um, but also whiskey as time go by, went by. And, uh, and, and like I said earlier in the program, uh, the, the soil and the climate here is particularly well suited to, to rye. And so it's, it's good for New York uh, agriculture as much as it is good for for New York spirits. I mean, I think there's a lot more other elements of the story. Yeah, and we did a show with you guys two years ago when you when it first started, so we've got a lot of documentation on that. But, Tom, for you guys at New York Distilling, why rye? Because I, I know you've got a rock and rye. Yeah, we do. Um, for us, rye is, is not just a product. It's like our only whiskey. Um, my partner, Alan Katz, was an early champion of rye. And when we started in 2009 and 10 talking about what would make sense to distill in New York, it was his theory that rye whiskey was the sweet spot. Because on the one hand, it was commercially tiny, but he thought it had good growth potential. He was really um, aware of the trends in the fancy cocktail bars. And he saw what was happening there as a leading indicator of what could happen, that this spirit, which had been largely forgotten over 50 years, was poised for a revival because at the top cocktail bars, bartenders were becoming aware of the history of whiskey, that rye had had an important place, that the classic whiskey cocktails, like the Old Fashioned, the, you know, the, the Sazerac, the uh, Manhattan, those were rye-based cocktails originally. And a lot of the, especially about 10 years ago, a lot of the bartenders were going back to the cocktail history and becoming aware that, you know, bourbon, yes, it is the dominant spirit now, but it hadn't always been that way. And rye had been the whiskey of the Northeast. It had been the whiskey of Pennsylvania, Maryland, New York. So there was this historical resonance, but also we hoped a business possibility that, yes, it was a tiny part of the market then, 
but we thought it would grow. So we don't actually make a bourbon. I, I think maybe alone among the early uh, whiskey makers in New York, we'd never have made a bourbon. We, we focused from rye from the very beginning. So for us, the idea of Empire Rye, for instance, was, was really powerful because that was you know, the heart and soul of what we felt New York could do well. We have a couple more guests here. So um, Raphael, introduce yourself because I always mess it up. Hi, I'm Raphael from Enlightenment Wines Meadery and uh, Honeys. So, Raphael, you, last week you heard about Rye Week, mm-hmm. and you got excited because you make a rye product. So w- what is it about rye that appeals to you, and what product have you been making with rye? So we make uh, something called Kvass, which is spelled uh, K-V-A-S-S, and mm, it would be, I think, probably like the prominent probiotic drink, um, something like a kombucha, I would say, uh, in Eastern Europe and Europe in the Middle Ages through till, you know, 1900s. Um, so I say it's like kombucha in the sense that it's sort of a almost no alcohol, sour drink. But uh, instead of using tea and sugar, and, uh, well, actually, you know, the biology is completely different. But it's essentially typically made with uh, used old rye bread or old bread. Uh, it would be kind of toasted and then... Water would be added, sometimes raisins, sometimes herbs. It's another one of these kind of um, things that people make in their homes. And when uh, did you start making it? I mean, you're, you're making we made it, it serving it commercially. Well, you know, it's funny. I was corresponding with Sander Katz about it probably for 10 years uh, because it's something I'd heard about and I'd been thinking a lot about, but I, I hadn't been making it primarily because it uh, kvass is a drink that people would make in their house, but... When the Soviet Union, you know, when the Communist Party took over and the Soviet Union became the Soviet Union, it was industrialized. And uh, they tried to turn it into sort of an alternative to Coca-Cola. So it became um, this thing made in factories from malt syrup. I think here it would be sort of similar to like that Malta beverage that uh, people from the Caribbean drink. But it's not. Um, also, people will sell it in giant barrels. But whatever that was, it was quite sweet, and I don't think very much like uh, what would have been drunk, you know, 500 years ago. And so I was interested in that primarily. And then when we opened up Honeys, uh, you know, we have a pretty active cocktail program, and obviously we sell mead there. Uh, But we really wanted to have something as interesting in our non-alcoholic program as in our alcoholic program. That's been very important to us since the beginning. So Kavas seemed to be a perfect uh, fit for that. So we've been making it there. We don't distribute it uh, typically. Uh, people come to the bar to drink it. We had a, a Rye Week event last night, and it was real great. Nice counterpoint to all the whiskeys. So. Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, I mean, at the bottom of it is sort of certain questions about authenticity and, you know, trying to make something now that sort of points back to a history. And the question is sort of like, what, why? I mean, you, you, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to make a rye whiskey that you guys have been talking about. I think for farmers, it's great. It may be a lot better than what was made, uh, you know, when they started making it here. You've got much more sophisticated tools now. Um, but I think it's really always interesting to think what stuff tasted like in the past. Um, and I know for, for us, you know, one of the things that will happen is people come in from Slovenia or Poland or wherever and, and be like, oh, I haven't had homemade kvass in a long time, and they'll try our kvass, and they'll like it, um, but they're like, yeah, but I wish it was a little sweeter. Because we, we're making it for a contemporary urban population that tends to like dry things, most of the stuff that our bars dry. Back in the 1500s, Anything that you can make slightly sweet, people were desperate for because there's no sugar and no way really to get it other than, you know, honey and fruit juices. So I think it's a kind of an interesting conversation because rye has been one of these plants that's been with us forever and it has all these different expressions. And one of the things it can do is make sugar. And from there you can obviously, um, you know, make alcohol or make a sour. Great. And another guest, uh, Liza, please introduce yourself. You're a writer that we know of um, in many, many ways. And thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Liza Hoistuck, and I am, I've been covering the spirits industry for over a decade or so. Um, largely write about whiskeys um, of the world. And I... How many countries have you been to distilleries in? 
I just got back from Singapore, which was my 17th country that I visited a distillery in. Wow, it's amazing. So what do you think about this? You came to the Rye Week event last night. Um, are you interested in rye, rye whiskeys? Are there any, any, anything you've written about it or might write about it? I'm interested in it for so many reasons. A, the authenticity, the story. I mean, what are we up to now? 2,000 craft distilleries? Um, yeah, air air quotes, craft distilleries. Um, and, you know, I don't need to sit here and explain that every, there's been some scandal. People have made up stories. And what I love about this is that it's real. It's a real story in and of itself, and it's a real story of America because what the first rye distiller in the U.S., first commercial rye distiller, none other than George Washington, after he, um, that's, that was my introduction to rye when they re, rebuilt his distillery at Mount Vernon, I think we're 12 years ago at this point, and um, the late, great Dave Pickerel, who was the master distiller at uh, Maker's Mark for 14 years before going on to become the, what he called, Johnny Appleseed of craft distillers, he consulted and they did their best to produce rye whiskey to the exact specs that George Washington made. And um, yeah, so I think this is sort of a reprise of that original Story. That's great. Well, we've got everyone in the room now. There's this, this five <laughs> guests. But Christopher, you know, t- talking about both Raphael and Liza mentioned history and traditions. I mean, of anyone, you're, you're making this ancient kind of craft spirit. <laughs> Tell us what you do. Just the, the from start to finish, how do you make your whiskey? Because you, you're wow. doing something different than what most people do. Yeah. Well, I'll try to. I'll try and to be concise. Concise. I, I can please. run on at the mouth about this stuff. But uh, the two-hour yeah, show, in like five so, so copper seed distilling is what we call a heritage methods farm distillery in the Hudson Valley in New York. So all of those things are sort of very meaningful. It's not just a, not just a marketing uh, line. So obviously we're in the Hudson Valley, New York. That's easy enough. Farm distillery. We have a seventy-five acre certified organic farm. We grow a portion of our own grain, but a hundred percent of our grain is coming from uh, farms in the Hudson Valley, within thirty miles of the distillery or so. And so we're using uh, what we call heritage methods. So we don't say traditional methods because our goal at Copper Sea is n- while it, while we take uh, our our nod from the uh, from the early distillers, ni- you know, 18th and 19th century American distilleries, we never pretend that we're doing it correctly according to what they would have would have thought was correct, or, or or we're not we're not we're not uh, you know we're not going to work in period dress or anything. You know this is not a it's not a it's not a set. Piece. I, I thought you actually yeah. did. You're you're kilning and like some well sometimes that stuff looks that stuff looks very you know because it is we are doing a very hands on process but you know what we're trying to do is we say we're doing things uh, you know no pun intended uh, in in the spirit of what those distillers were doing and so and you to need that to have, end you need our, a long beard right yes I do have it's a long heritage beard. day I used with to have a top knot too but I thought Raphael and Christopher but uh, my our 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 heritage methods you know they are uh, we do all of our own malting so we're 100 percent floor malted, all of our malts coming from our own, our own floor. Uh, we use open wild fermentation. We're using simple direct fired pot stills. So fire under the pot, not a steam jacket, not a column. And uh, and then we go in at very, very low barrel entry proof, which was the standard of 19, 18th and 19th century distilleries and which elicits very different flavors. So- Can you say I, the low barrel at what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what yeah, so, yeah. The, so the standard barrel entry proof for American whiskeys, uh, you know, it's not mandated, but it is the legal maximum is 125 proof, which is fine. It, it, it produces a whiskey with a very specific set of characteristics, and that is because there are both uh, water-soluble and ethanol-soluble compounds in whiskey. And so the higher the concentration of ethanol, the more of a percentage of ethanol-soluble compounds you're going to get out of the oak. So if you go in at a lower proof, you're going to, if you have more water in the whiskey that you're putting into the barrel uh, in, in proportion to the ethanol, you're going to get more of the water-soluble compounds, which are going to give you very different flavors. The other thing that's going to happen is, so for example, at, at Copper Sea, across the board on our whiskeys, we go in at 105 proof, which is incredibly low. That's difference between that's 20 proof degrees different from the standard, which just to be clear, Almost all contemporary American distilleries, certainly the biggest ones, go in at 125 proof. Uh, their reasoning is up for conjecture, but I will mention that the more, the higher the proof that you go, you put the whiskey into the barrel, the fewer barrels you have to use. And a barrel 
is not a cheap thing, you know, 300 to $400 per barrel new, and you can only use it once, bear in mind, for American bourbon or rye. So if you go in at 100 proof or 105 proof, uh, so for example, just for easy math, let's say that I go in at 105 proof. That means for every four barrels that I fill, um, or sorry, for every five barrels that a major distillery going in at 125 proof fills, I'm only going, I, I can only fill four barrels. Okay, so, um, wait, did I do that right? No, I'm, sorry, the, right. the opposite. I'm filling five barrels for every four barrels at a major distillery going in at 125 proof. Uh, and the other thing is uh, you're then adding water to that product on the back end. So when you harvest that barrel at 125 proof and then you're putting in the water to get you to bottle proof, which the legal minimum, or so, yeah, the legal lowest you can go is 80 proof, which is where almost every major American distillery bottles their whiskey. That means you're, you're putting in that much water. I bottle at 96 proof, so I'm only putting in nine proof degrees of water. So that means more of the whiskey in the bottle was actually aged as whiskey rather than being water, a water addition. That's quite interesting. And let's just, I'm going to jump. We're not going to go any deeper into that one. Now, bear in uh, mind, quick, though, <laughs> is that Empire Rye requires a 10 proof degree lower barrel proof by the conditions of Empire Rye than conventional ryes do. So that's something we programmed in. That's great. I'm going to ask more about rye. So for terroir, you're talking about things like terroir. We don't have to explain that to our listeners, but we should. Um, terroir in rye, does that translate into your product? And does anyone want to answer that well, question? I, would, I, I have a, kind of a question that relates to that, uh, which is water seems really critical to everything you're doing. And I know that the water, you know, we're primarily mead makers, so, you know, we're 90% water, right? Uh, our water is really important. Um, how much is the water consistent across New York? Does New York have a flavor for their water? Does that affect the Empire Spirit? <laughs> Derek, uh, well, you know, the thing is the the water across uh, New York, it probably varies a lot. Um, I'm a New York City producer. You steal and, our water. And I steal, <laughs> exactly. I'm actually using the same water that Christopher's using. Uh, and, and New York, that's what's so amazing about New York City is that we have this, that I would argue, I love tasting tap water across the world. And uh, it's fascinating to me to, to taste what people's water tastes like. In, and we're so spoiled here. Like, I have no qualms with opening up the tap in New York City and having a glass of water. It is uh, really world class. Um, and, and it makes great whiskey. And it, it's, uh, it's the right pH. It has the right minerals. Uh, you almost, you, uh, for a whiskey maker, I have to, to add zero um, brewing additions. And, and there's places around the world who have to add a lot of things to the water in order to make good beer slash good whiskey. Uh, and, and like I said, it's, it's the same water. It's from Hudson Valley. It's from this, um, the Catskills. And uh, I can't actually speak to water in the western part of the state, but, but it is important. It has to do with uh, yeast health and, and as well as you're adding water in, across the board. I'm adding water. In my distillery, I'm adding water after distillation, before barrel entry, after um, coming out of the barrel, before it goes into the bottle. And it really does have a, a big impact. Liza? Is, am I correct in understanding that that's what makes bourbon, uh, Kentucky bourbon specifically, so special because of the limestone, the limestone um, shelf that's, they call it, or is that that's folklore? certainly part of their marketing okay. um, uh, campaign? Um. So uh, I, I I'll differ a little bit. I, <laughs> I think <laughs> that uh, the water across the state is going to be different. You know from. Uh, Finger Lakes to Buffalo to the Hudson Valley to New York City. I, I think that's not going to be the main story in a whiskey. In the same way that back in my brewing days, you know, whenever I heard a, a brewer talk about the quality of the water, I was pretty suspicious. If that's the best part of their story, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty thin story. I think the terroir of rye in New York is an interesting story. Um, and it's complicated. I, I kind of wish it was simpler because, especially with the Empire Rye, it would be easier if we could tell a, a unified story. But the truth is there's a lot of different climates in New York State. And um, we grow our uh, grain in the Finger Lakes area. It, it's a rockier soil, not a lot of vegetable content, um, real hard winters. It's good for rye. But it is different than the Hudson Valley where typically you're going to have more organic material. It's going to be different. And so, yes, I think that, that the rise of New York are all going to be pretty good and all better than in warmer climates. 
which is, by the way, recognized by the Kentucky distillers who buy their rye from Canada. Um, but I can't say that it's all the same um, between the different areas. And I think that's one of the things that will be fun as, as our whiskeys come of age. Bear in mind, uh, our oldest whiskeys are now only four years old. And so we're still in the early stages of knowing what we've got and beginning to experiment. And when, when it comes to heritage, rye gives us a lot to work with historically. But what's also going to be fun is where we can take it. And again, going back to the beer days, I started in 1988. And back then, all of us were recreating historic styles that we loved. It was pale ales from England and Oktoberfests or you know, different, different beers that we loved from Germany, England, and Belgium, basically. But as time went on, the American brewers got better and better and began to riff on those styles. And now it's clear, you know, the golden age of beer is right now, not because of the historical recreations, because where that led American brewers. Distilling, it's going to take longer. The life, the life cycle of our products is so long that an experiment, you, you can't, like a beer, you can make it and you taste it in, in a, a few weeks or a few months. We don't know what our whiskey is going to taste like at 10 years old. So we're, we're still working on it. No, that's great. We're going to talk more about it. We'll be back in a minute on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Friends of Firefighters, serving the FDNY community since 2001. Friends of Firefighters is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to providing free, independent, and confidential mental health counseling and wellness services to active and retired FDNY firefighters and their family members. Friends of Firefighters was born within days of September 11, 2001, through the performance of several unobtrusive acts of kindness offered by the local community. Over the past 18 years, Friends of Firefighters has expanded to meet the growing needs of the FDNY community. Today, the organization provides a safe haven in an old restored firehouse in Red Hook, Brooklyn, where New York City firefighters, active and retired, can relax, meet with their peers, receive counseling with no stigma attached, exchange information, and access an array of services specific to their needs. To learn more and find out how you can get involved, go to friendsoffirefighters.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Check us out, heritageradionetwork.org. Our 10th anniversary gala is November 11th in Brooklyn, heritageradionetwork.org. And a shout out to uh, Roberta's Draft. We are drinking a Half Acre Oktoberfest. It's kind of perfect. It's not rye, but it's got a little color to it. And uh, what do you guys think? It, it's almost rye. <laughs> well, we, you know, rye has flavor. Rye has tawar. Uh, Tom Potter, we're just talking a little bit about it. Um, and Christopher just... Keep going. Talk a little more about Rye, Tawar, New York State. Yeah, well, I agree with everything Tom just said, uh, also about the water stuff. But, but that aside, from the, from the terroir perspective, um, yeah, this, is, this topic of terroir or provenance, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, I think there's been a lot of interest in it. Uh, that's certainly something that people want to talk about when they're asking us about Empire Rye. What is, you know, does it have terroir? Is this, is this what's going on with it? Is this what you're trying to accomplish? And what I would say is, some people would some people would argue, well, how how can whiskey have terroir? All the process that goes into it, the distillation, and and I think, well, it, I think it I, I think it absolutely can have terroir. But what I would say is that the best chance of us knowing that whiskey can have terroir is Empire Rye, probably as a, as a category, because to, to get a sense of what a particular agricultural or culinary product uh, can produce as a, as an expression of terroir, you need a you need a sample set. You know, you need you need a, a product where everybody's more or less agreed upon the conditions of its creation, and that and one of those conditions fundamentally has to be uh, the local provenance of the of the base material. In this case, rye. You know, so we can't even have you can't even have a conversation about terroir without multiple producers producing something according to a set uh, criteria, with a f the majority of that product being. A, a local agricultural product. So, you know, and, and in a way it's made me sort of reverse, 
reverse course or relook at some of the other products that we think about as having terroir or we might even, or, or, or that we might associate with a place. So for example, Kentucky bourbon. Now nobody's gonna argue that Kentucky is the ancestral home of bourbon, but can we really make a meaningful uh, claim to terroir in Kentucky bourbon? I mean, the, you know, the base material is corn and that corn is coming from all parts of the country. It's a commodity product that's coming into these distilleries in huge quantities, certainly well more than the state of Kentucky is going to be able to produce for all of those distilleries. Um, so I, I don't really think that that is a conversation that can be had about Kentucky bourbon. Um, certain areas of Scotland, for example, will now use, you know, are using uh, local grain, like, an, like, like certain Isla distilleries are using uh, exclusively Isla grown uh, barley and, and producing their malt locally. Um, but that has to be the starting point. And that's what we're doing. We're using 75, all of us who are making Empire Rye are using 75% minimum New York state grown rye. And as Tom said, it's going to take some time before we really understand what that, what, what the commonalities, what the thread is going to be. Um, Great. And Liza, earlier you mentioned that you're interested in uh, American single malt. Let's talk about that as a different category because um, did you want to ask that question? First, I want to ask a rye question. Okay. That's okay. Um, there's been, I know you, Tom, at New York Distilling, you've worked closely with a farmer and then through the gentleman at Cornell. What's his name? Uh, uh, a couple, Mark Sorrell. Was Mark Sorrell. Um, what, I think he runs a seed bank and genetics research. Well, he does, he's a small grains academic, and uh, with his help, we acquired 10 seeds from Seed Bank in Idaho. So we, that was 10 years ago. Um, we actually acquired two different strains um, that had been used in distilling in New York back in the 1800s. Our idea was to repropagate an heirloom rye. And so uh, with the farmer that we've worked with ever since, um, beginning in two, 2010, um, we propagated uh, those two varieties. One, called Prolific, uh, petered out right away, unfortunately. <laughs> and the other, kind of more humbly named Horton, has done really well. Um, but we started with 10 seeds, and you know, each cycle, growth cycle, is a year. You, know, you start with 10 seeds, and then you end up with 100, and mm -hmm. then you end up with 1,000. But it takes a million seeds per acre to plant. And so we didn't have enough rye to actually do any distilling until the beginning of 2015. And we didn't have um, enough in quantity, really, to, to um, barrel or even to you know, think about having a product until just about now. This is a product that is still in barrels that we have not yet sold. Mm -hmm. So it, it will be a 10- or 11-year project to bring out the Horton Rock. You're also breeding toward a land race, which is, you know, by seed saving, effectively, you're kind of... It's not... You're not creating a true variety, but the, the seeds that you're saving are the ones that are the, the, the children of the ones that made it in the particular climate that yeah. your seeds were planted in. So by doing that consecutively year after year, it's basically self-selecting itself for the region that it's being grown in. And as a result, it's changing. Its exactly. flavor is changing. It's altering. And it's becoming a true New York variety. It's, it's a really awesome. great point. Um, and because rye had, had fallen out of favor, there wasn't really much of a commercial market for it there weren't a lot of pure rye varietals being grown in New York. Um, our farmer, Rick Peterson, who's primarily an organic farmer, had been using rye as a cover crop for decades, and he had been collecting his, you know, his own rye, just open pollination rye. So he, he has had basically his own mutt variety, uh, which we're calling Peterson Field Race Rye, and that is the basis of our ragtime rye family of ryes. So our rye is by by 25 years worth of, of uh, growing and ingrowing and, and um, uh, blowing in the wind become a unique um, sort of uh, a field race, a, a unique flavor of rye on its own. One thing that will be really interesting over time, as, as all of us in the Empire family and, and, and distillers across the Northeast begin to experiment with rye, what varieties will work well? Um, Cornell is a wonderful resource in New York. Another reason why New York is a great place to grow rye, because we have this, this fantastic academic institution helping us out. But what they're, what they're working on is like, what, is the, um, what yields the most? What is the easiest mm -hmm. for farmer to grow? 
and there's a whole another side of it, which is what tastes what tastes right. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the Horton yields are terrible. You know, they're a third of what Danko or, or the the modern varietals are, and it's really dangerous to grow because it has a really thin stalk that grows really tall. So, if you get a storm right before you're, you're hoping to harvest it, it all lays down and gets muddy, and you can't use it. Which is why, of course, um, over time, farmers grew sturdier varieties. These heirloom varietals have advantages and disadvantages. We think that one advantage is that they have a big burst of flavor. The low yield probably concentrates all the elements in the soil. Mm. That's our theory, at least. And we're very excited with how the, these early whiskeys are tasting. But on the other hand, they really don't yield very much. And, you know, you get a, a hailstorm in the wrong week, you know, you've lost a year's worth of, of work. So the, the idea of what varieties will be best for distillers and for farms, something that, that we're, we're still working on. That is commitment. Wow. It's amazing. A great question, too. Derek? Yeah, I think that the, this conversation about how local, how New York whiskeys taste is, is a little complicated because when you think about terroir in wine, Generally, a, a region that you're saying is a terroir is all, everyone's growing the same grape, and they're all using the same climate. And, and you know, at our very first Empire Rye event that we had seven ryes. Every, and, and there's a lot of history behind it. A lot of, yeah, exactly. And our first Empire Rye event, we had seven ryes there. All seven, totally different uh, whiskeys. I think you could probably have a, if you, if you tasted through them once and knew what they were, you could go back and have a blind taste test and guess which ones was which. And, uh, and I think that trying to, to tell a consumer that there's a New York State terroir is going to be very challenging because even though we have these really strict regimented rules about how to make an empire rye, there's so much variation that one can, a whiskey maker can bring to the table in terms of what rye varietals, where your farm is, what your water is, what your wood is, how you distill it, how you, you know, there's just so much variation. And, and I think that that's one of the fantastic things we did an event at, uh, at, at at Union Square this last weekend, we had four Empire Rise. They all tasted different. And uh, you talk to four customers, and, and you sell four different bottles. And so um, I think that I, I, I believe in my heart that, that New York is a great place to make whiskey, and I think it's a better place to make whiskey than a lot of places. But I think having to trying to explain to somebody how all of our whiskeys are going to taste <laughs> the same is never going to happen because they're always going to taste different. Well, I think that there's one commonality, though, that we haven't really discussed. And I think that you're right. The, the, the terroir question, I think, you know, I, look, I'm a, I'm a deep nerd, you know, uh, one word, deep nerd. I deep nerd on lots of things, everything I'm interested in. And so there's lots of whiskey deep nerds who are going to dig into this sort of thing and really get into the grain hey, what's question. Your, what's your full name, Christopher? <laughs> Christopher <laughs> Briar-Williams. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so, so I think you're right. But... If we just if we limit our conversation, or if you if you if you just make a choice to limit your conversation to the process points, you're already we're already um, making such a big, uh, uh, or putting ourselves in a very uh, specific place. You know, we have a lot of specificity in our in our requirements. So, for example, just in the world of rye, we're already creating a whiskey that as a category has a distinctive flavor profile and that is high rye rye you know cuz we're using 75 a minimum of 75% new york state grown rye so just even if it was just minimum of 75% new, uh, 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 rye you got to bear in mind that most of the ryes on the market are what i call <laughs> i have i two different names for them they're either i call them sometimes i call them barely legal rye uh, that is because to be called rye in the united states it has to be a minimum of 51% rye and most of the ryes made in the us coming out of kentucky are coming in just over that 51% threshold. Um, sometimes I'll also call them, uh, you know, high, uh, uh, low corn bourbons. Because, you know, again, most of the time the mash bill for Kentucky rye is going to be 51% rye, something like 30 or 35% corn, and then some, the balance will be malted barley. So it's, it's almost indistinguishable from a high rye bourbon. In New York, with Empire Rye, it's rye, and you know it right off the bat because it's always going to have that minimum of 75% rye in it. So, And that is really a return to what those early eastern ryes of the 19th century were all about. A lot of those guys were coming in at over 90% rye. So I, I'll often quip to people who are really into Manhattans, if you haven't had a Manhattan with a high rye rye, with an empire rye, for example, 
you really haven't had a Manhattan as it was originally intended because those Manhattans made by people like Harry Craddock and that early, those early golden age of, of American cocktails, they were all using super high rise from Pennsylvania, Maryland, or New York. You know, that these other rise on the market, whether they're from Canada or from Kentucky, just don't even come close to. Rafa, do you want to ask another question? Um, well, I just, something I just keep thinking about, uh, you know, we're, we're a meadery. We use 100% local ingredients. And I think something that gets missed a lot in that conversation that is really important and I haven't heard yet um, is that there's beyond the, the sense of place and story. When, when, you, when you use, when you have a commitment to local ingredients, you're also talking about a lot of other things like, you know, most of the things that we eat and we drink are the product of really cheap fossil fuels. That's why you can have corn being shipped in from all around the world to Kentucky to make this mass-produced product. The world of the future that we're going to be walking into may not look like that, and I don't think it should. But most importantly, like, how many of these businesses survive when gasoline costs twice as much as it does now? A lot of them don't. But when you have a product that's made locally, grown locally, you've got a potential future for not just your business, but that product. You know, if, if, the, if in five years suddenly gasoline becomes really expensive, you can still make an empire rye. I don't know how much of this other stuff you'll be able to make. I don't know how many brewers who are shipping all their grain in from Germany can make their beer. I think it's really important that even as just a, a, wells, a well of knowledge for the future, that this is a really important like work that you're doing to not just grow out the grain, but to learn how to use it. And that, that can be information for New York distillers, you know, in 20 years. Well, that's a really good point. I'm going to ask Derek a different question. Um, so we've kind of laid out what Empire Rye is. We know the, some of the, the original uh, distilleries, the new adapters. How, what, what is the, the end game? So let's say five, 10 years out, how many New York State distilleries will be part of it? Um, in, and as you're, you're part of the, the New York State Distillers Guild, yeah, I, uh, I'm on the on the board of the New York State Distillers Guild. I think that of the people of the whiskey makers in New York who are or of the distillers in New York who are whiskey makers, um, I think you'll see all of them making an empire rye. Um, I think that if you're making a rye whiskey, it, it just makes sense to jump on our uh, jump on the the collective marketing uh, story of empire rye. Uh, but but there are just it's it's noted it's notable that a lot of distilleries in New York City are not or in New York State are not making whiskeys, and so. Uh, obviously, those folks will not be making that Yeah. Um, any any other questions from anybody? Laz, do you want to ask another question? Or are you sucking it all in? You're good. <laughs> I have one for you, which is, as a journalist, so you've written a few stories about about uh, the topic of Empire Eye and, and some of these other uh, categories. We're actually seeing now, uh, I, I like to think, you know, New York always being the uh, initiator of national trends. Since we started Empire Rye, we've now seen a uh, an increase in the interest in regional style. So now, like Missouri is doing a, a, a bourbon style that they're trying to to create a sort of a domain for. Texas has like a Texas whiskey thing. These things all have their own sort of specific requirements. But I don't know. Like as a journalist, what what sort of with a broader mandate? What is the impetus? Like how, how do how come like why does this idea resonate? You know, like with your editors, like why do people want to hear about this stuff? Well, I think, first of all, it's just human nature to need to categorize things, to look at the world as a classified structure. And it helps people understand the whole whiskey industry when they can break it down. I mean, I still get questions, um, I'm sure you all do too, what's the difference between whiskey and bourbon? So the learning curve is big and it's still moving, but uh, but we'll get there. Um, but I also think what Raphael just said, you know, there is this deep interest in local, 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 and am I getting something unique if I'm eating or drinking local? So that's always a good sell for, for a publication. Um, and yeah, it's, it's exciting because it's, I think it's forcing people around the country to be innovative and to think harder, like what can I do either I, to, what can I do as a region to make myself stand out and get noticed? Because it's too hard to do it as your own distillery. I mean, 
Great. And um, just one, changing the subject, back to the, the, the classifications of Empire Rye. I think your son, uh, Bill Potter, last night was talking about this. Why, why is it a two-year age requirement? You know, I thought whiskey is supposed to be 10-year age whiskey. I don't quite understand the aging and how that factors in and also the small barrel aging of some of the distillers. Well, um, this is so, our last question. <laughs> So I, I think the short answer is we chose two years because that was um, what's required to be a straight whiskey. And we just wanted to say that should be the minimum. It's my guess that over time, especially, you'll see Empire Rise um, being aged longer. Um, we just brought out in the Ragtime family our Bottled and Bond. So that's a four-year-old, um, all from the spring of 2015 distilled, uh, bottled at 100 proof. Um, I think you can have different arguments about what size barrel is right. We do not make any requirement about that. You can use a small barrel if you want to. Um, I think it's generally conceded that if you want to age it longer, you should do it in a larger barrel because otherwise it gets too much extraction. So, I, um, And I think Derek spoke to that, that earlier because he had originally been using some smaller barrels. But that's not a requirement. Um, we've always felt at the New York Distilling Company that we, we wanted to age them um, in a more traditional fashion, you know, for four, six, eight years. And that meant we had to be in 53-gallon barrels, the, which is the largest that's allowed by, by law. Um, I don't know if that's the only way to do it, but that's, that's what we've done. That's great. So there's the, the base is the two-year two aging, but then different distilleries will add their own special bottles. And that's things. right. That's great. This has been a great show, guys. Um, we're going to cut a short. This will be airing. It's it'll be October 2019 when you listen to this. Thanks so much for Rye Week. It was a really great week. We brought together some really great people this year, grain growers, bakers, um, you know, mead and ferment geniuses like uh, Raphael at uh, Enlightenment Wines. Meadery. Meadery. Uh, and uh, So everyone, just say their name one more time, and we're going to wrap up the show. This is Christopher Bayer Williams from Copper Sea Distilling in the Hudson Valley of New York. Liza Weistuck, journalist. All right. Uh, Raphael Lyon from Enlightenment Wines Meadery. You gotta keep saying that, I can, so I can. A lot. Get it. I know. Getting it on a business. Derek Slusselman from Van Brunt Stillhouse <laughs> in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Tom Potter from New York Distilling in Brooklyn, makers of Ragtime Rye. You guys, once again, thanks so much for inviting me to be part of your Rye Week. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Empire Rye Project and the whole regional grains revival. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. Big shout out to producer Dylan Hoyer and uh, our new intern. He's out there. Sorry, Kevin B. And uh, Matt Patterson, engineer. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo. <laughs> Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.